Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, I know what we'll do this week. Let's do another listener email show. We get lots of email from all over the world. There's one now. What does it say? Yeah, it's uh, Adam in Guelph, and he says, Doing a listener email show is just like when a TV program does an episode of Clips and Flashbacks. What, have you run out of ideas? I couldn't agree more, Adam. No one's being lazy. It's just a nice way to acknowledge some of the people who take the time to send email. Well, this one's from uh, Stewie in Ottawa, and he says, Right. The old user-generated content excuse. You don't want to write a show, so you get the audience to do it for you. Very good, Stewie. You see where he's going here. Not true at all. Uh, maybe a little. Vince in Bristol, England. Get on with it, he says. Couldn't agree more, Vince. Couldn't agree more. But we just started! Ian in Calgary agrees with both of us. I agree with Vince. Just get on with it, and I have to say the same because I got an anniversary to go to or my wife is going to kill me. <sighs> okay, give me a second. All right! Roll it. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Honestly, though, I get upwards of a hundred messages a day. I read them all, and we try to respond to as many of them as we possibly can. I mean, really, we, we do try. I've also been saving the best ones for a show like this. Some are really good, and some are really strange. So let's pick it up from there. Some weirdness from the inbox. And again, what you're about to hear are actual messages from actual people. Now, Sean wants me to say hi to Amanda in Brantford. That's easy. Hi, Amanda. Oh, that's that's it. Okay. Um, next email. This is from Smith H. at the University of Washington. He writes, How about a show about all the musicians that Winona Ryder has dated? You know, something I've actually considered that. That would be a pretty good show. Uh, let's see. Winona has gone out with or been connected to Dave Grohl, Ryan Adams, Pete Yorn, Jack White, Julian from The Strokes, Connor Bright Eyes Oberst, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco is possibly somewhere in the mix. Dude named Damian Rice, he's Irish. Uh, then there's Beck, Trey Cool of Green Day, Marky Wahlberg. You know Marky Mark, younger brother of the new kid on the block, Donnie Wahlberg. Uh, he was a new kid, too, but he was kicked out and replaced by Joey. But that's another story. Uh, who else? Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind was in there for a while. Winona dated Everlast. His real name is Eric Shorty, by the way. John Kay from Jamiroquai. Adam Duritz of The Counting Crows, who dated both Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox, by the way. He's just a greedy git. Uh, Chris Isaac. 
Dave Perner of Soul Asylum. That was a serious one for a while. Paul Westerberg of The Replacements. I guess that was during her Minneapolis punk period. Uh, oh, here's a good one. Mike Nesmith of The Monkees. There's an age difference. Uh, she went out with Johnny Depp, too. And that counts because he's friends with Noel Gallagher and actually wrote a couple of Oasis songs with Noel while hanging out on the Caribbean island of Moustique smoking spliffs. He was also in his own band called P. Okay, who am I missing? Uh, oh, Evan Dando of the Lemonheads. And and the last I heard, Winona was engaged to Blake Sennett, who plays guitar in a band called Rilo Kylie. Um, and I think that's it. I count 22 musicians. Uh, we could play a song from any one of those guys, but why don't we do this? Now, I should point out that before we actually play this song that it is not actually about Winona Ryder. It is not. However, that hasn't stopped a lot of people from making the erroneous connection. But we'll play it anyway, and I'll explain the fallout later. This is Primus. Winona's got herself a big brown beaver and she shows them off to all her friends. One day you know that beaver tried to leave it, so she gave him up with cyclone fans. Along came Lou with the old baboons and recognized that smell. Primus from 1995 with Winona's Big Brown Beaver, a song that has nothing whatsoever to do with Winona Ryder, the actress. However, like I said, people have made the connection as incorrect as it may be. In fact, Dave Perner, an ex of Ms. Ryder, wrote a song about Les Claypool, the leader of Primus. It was called Les Claypool is an Effing A Hole. <laughs> it was actually the song. Anyway, I'm glad we can sort things out for the dude who emailed from the University of Washington. All right, next we go to Brisbane, Australia, for a question from Brian. Brian is a fan of the excellent 1996 movie Hardcore Logo. On the soundtrack are all these songs performed by a band called Swamp Baby. Now, Brian's question is, who is Swamp Baby? Didn't they win a Juno or something? And why didn't Hugh Dillon, who, of course, started the movie, give me a straight answer when I asked him about it? Well, let's take that last question first. The whole thing about Hardcore Logo is that it's supposed to be a real documentary about some real musicians. Hugh was being evasive because he didn't want to ruin the illusion and the mythology around the events and characters and music in the movie. Second last question. No, there was no Juno. It was a genie for Best Achievement in Music original song. The track in question was... Who the hell do you think you are? It's credited to Hugh Dillon, who plays the character Joe Dick, and Swamp Baby. All right, then who is Swamp Baby? Are they, were they a real band? For the answer, I called Bruce McDonald, the director of Hardcore Logo. Swamp Baby was real. They were a Toronto band pulled together just for the movie by Peter Moore of the Cowboy Junkies. Now, they wrote some music based on the lyrics in the book upon which the movie was based. Hardcore Logo was written by a dude named Michael Turner. Is there anything else out there by them? Not that anyone is willing to admit. Joe Dick, singer, songwriter. Billy Talent, guitar player. Pipe Pipefitter, drummer. <laughs> John Oxenberger, songwriter, bassist. From the classic Canadian rock movie Hardcore Logo, that's Hugh Dillon and Swamp Baby with a Genie Award-winning song called Who the Hell Do You Think You Are? Uh, 
Next is Justin from Mississauga and Alice from Toronto. Both of them are planning a trip to Europe and they want to see some rock and roll history sites. What should we do? It's a pretty broad question, but I'd start with trying to find an excellent book called Rock and Roll Traveler, Great Britain and Ireland. It's by the Fodder's Travel Guide people. It's, it's perfect for the rock fan who wants to visit some history in the UK and Ireland. Now, here's the bad news. It is long out of print. But here's the good news. You can pick it up at Amazon.com for as little as 35 cents. Trust me, it's a very good book to have. For example, you might want to pay a visit to King Tut's Wawa Hut on St. Vincent Street in Glasgow, Scotland. This is the place where Oasis was discovered by Alan McGee of Creation Records after they allegedly threatened the owner with arson if he didn't let them play that night. The date was May 31st, 1993. You can read all about it in Rock and Roll Traveler, Great Britain and Ireland. Don't go to the UK without it. Oasis, allegedly performing live at King Tut's Wawa Huts in Glasgow, Scotland, which brings me to another listener email. This one's from Poland, and I'm sorry, dude, I just can't pronounce your name, so I'm not going to embarrass myself or you by doing it. He asks if what we just heard was a genuine live recording. No, it is not. It is a fake. And we know that to be true because Noel Gallagher told me so back in 1997. It's not not from a gig at all. It's actually from, uh, we got invited to play a Sony convention just before we signed to Creation. Because I think at the time Sony were um, uh, bankrolling Creation and I think they wanted to have a look at us. So we went up there and we were, that, uh, that was actually recorded in the sound check for the Sony convention in Glen Eagles Hotel in, uh, would have been 1993. And uh, we were all very 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 drunk but we didn't want to put that it was recorded in a Sony convention because that wouldn't look cool so we we decided we would lie and put it was done in Glasgow which is far cooler but we did own up to it on the Master Plan album we did say where it was from and where did, where did the crowd noises come from? well we nicked that off uh, and Eric Clapton all the faces bootleg from the roundhouse in about 1973 and there you go more listener email coming next so don't go anywhere we took it all we brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A $6 billion con. It didn't take long for it to spread like wildfire. You gotta take a look at this really crazy gold stock. A buddy of mine got in at a dime. Which destroyed lives and devastated communities. Every little town across the nation, people have shares in this. We lost everything. And to date, no one has been brought to justice. Somebody knows more than we know. The $6 billion gold scam. From the BBC World Service and CBC. 
Search for the $6 billion gold scam wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I get technical questions, and I've been getting a lot that go like this. This is from Kurt in Santa Barbara, California. I realize that many recent albums are louder than usual. They are so loud that they adversely affect my listening experience. I did some online research on the issue and have found that a tremendous number of new rock albums are produced this way. These include albums by System of a Down, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and the Foo Fighters. Why is that? Why do you think this practice has an adverse effect on music? And what can the industry do to fight against such practices? This is from Clint in Toronto. Metallica just recently released their album Death Magnetic to much fanfare. Being a longtime fan, I went out and purchased the CD on the very first day it went on sale. However, Upon listening to the CD, I realized that it was very loud. Not loud in the good Metallica way, but loud as in there being no dynamic range at all in the album. What are supposed to be quieter parts of the songs sound just as loud as the loud parts. Moreover, the louder parts sound distorted in all the stereos I've played it on. The single The Day That Never Comes makes my speakers rumble with distortion, even at low volume levels. Why are albums being produced so loud these days? There are similar emails here from Jason in Waterloo, Jody in Winnipeg, Sam in Halifax, and a dozen others. Great, great question. But before we go any further, we should try and illustrate what we're all talking about. And the best example is that Metallica song. Hit it. Metallica for one of the most controversial albums of 2008. Not for what it says or what the band has done, but for the way the album sounds. And to many people, this is the most egregious example of what's become known as the loudness wars. Now, the first thing we must understand is the differences between level, volume, and loudness. Level is a technical term and has a precise meaning. It measures the amount of sound coming at you. It measures sound pressure level. It's the force of the acoustic energy hitting you and your ears and is expressed in units with names like newtons per square meter. Volume is a little more subjective. It's more or less the same as level because more volume results in more acoustic energy coming at you. But because volume is related to the device driving it, the measurement of volume could be seen as subjective. This means If you turn it up to 10 on one amplifier and turn it up to 10 on another amplifier, you could have two different levels, even though your volume settings are exactly the same. Here's a better example. Turn up the volume on your iPod and it cranks out just so much music. To get the full effect, you have to wear headphones. But to crank up an amplifier at a rock concert and you can blow people away over 50 feet. Both are turned up to, like 10, like I said, but the PA can generate much higher sound pressure levels. Okay? Then there's loudness. Increase the level, and you increase the loudness. Increase the volume, and you can also increase the loudness. But loudness is not level, and it's not volume. Are you confused yet? Just because loudness is high doesn't mean what you're listening to is loud. I know, just stay with me. Loudness refers to the difference in perceived levels between the naturally soft parts of a song and the ones that aren't so soft. 
On a recording, this range of soft to loud is called the dynamic range. If a recording has a wide dynamic range, you can really tell the difference. The song has a wide open airy feeling with peaks and valleys and sound pressure levels that result regardless of the volume. But if you compress that recording, if you electronically squish the sound so there isn't much difference between a peak and a valley, you increase its loudness. You haven't increased the level, you haven't increased the volume, you've merely made all the bits of the song really in your face. And you run into this many times. Here's the best example. You're watching TV late at night. You have the volume turned down nice and low so you don't disturb anybody. Then the commercial comes on and it's really, really loud. Actually, it's not technically loud. The loudness is high, which actually makes it seem loud. Now let's get back to our original question. Artists, producers, and record labels have got into this arms war over loudness. They believe that if something sounds louder, it will stand out. That's why there's been an effort to make CDs sound louder by adding more compression, squishing those peaks and valleys. A side effect is that unrelenting loudness makes you tired. You get something called listener fatigue. The worst offenders that I found are the Arctic Monkeys, the Chili Peppers, the Killers, Muse, Queens of the Stone Age, and of course, Metallica. Death Magnetic has so much compression on it that people say that there's distortion all over it, even at the lowest volumes. And there were online petitions to get Metallica to do it again. Metallica and producer Rick Rubin say, hey, it's all fine. But there are hundreds and maybe thousands of Metallica fans that beg to differ. That was a really long, difficult explanation. I hope it helps. A few more questions to wrap things up next. We have time for a couple more questions from the inbox. John from London, Ontario and Chaya from Toronto want to know if the music video is dead. Well, I think so, at least in the form in which it was born back in the 70s and 80s. See, back then, being able to see your favorite band was a novelty. Now it's just a matter of calling up YouTube on your iPhone while you wait for the bus. No wonder MTV and Much Music don't show that many videos anymore. Can you believe that at one time both channels used to show clips around the clock? Videos were also great marketing tools for the record labels. You spend half a million on a video and then sell two million dollars worth of the album. Smart investment. Now videos can be sinkholes with no return. And the music video is evolving. It's all about access, consumer engagement, and cost. There are some people who are actually making videos by using nothing more than the video capabilities of their mobile phones, believe it or not. Diego from Santiago, Chile, and Dunya from Madrid want to know what I think of file sharing. Uh, do you mean grabbing music for free? Okay, well, you know what? I used to do that a lot. Now I don't anymore. Every free illegal download is money out of an artist's pocket. And since most of what I like are from niche genres or indie performers, every penny means something to them, so I would rather pay. Even big bands deserve to be paid for making music. That's their job. That's their livelihood. I don't begrudge you 2 or the Rolling Stones or Oasis for being successful, nor should they be punished for being rich because so many people like what they do. Saying that, ah, they can afford it, misses the ethical and moral point entirely. Hey, you want to know why concert ticket prices and the cost of band t-shirts are so high? Pissed off that your favorite band lent a song to a TV commercial? Blame illegal downloading. They got to make up that revenue somewhere. 
Colin from Leeds, England, wants to know if anyone in the world of new rock has been as influential as David Bowie. Short answer, no. Take any genre of rock you'd like, punk, new wave, industrial, electronica, and somehow you'll be able to trace it back to something that David Bowie did in the 1970s. Nirvana, the Sex Pistols, the Foo Fighters, Nine Inch Nails, R.E.M., Smashing Pumpkins, the Killers, Scott Weiland, Coldplay, they all have bits of Bowie DNA in their sound and vision. He's the Beatles of the alt-rock set. I could go on, but there's a very long book and probably a Ph.D. dissertation in that subject. We don't have time, so let's just hear a little bit about the Thin White Duke. Except that I'm not going to play any David Bowie. This is David Hart and Amun Ra. In 2003, they released an album called A Dedication to David Bowie. This is not a tribute album in the sense that they recorded covers of Bowie songs. Instead, they recorded a whole album praising Bowie. This is very strange and it sounds terrible, but it's still worth a listen. This is called A Song for David Bowie. Uh, okay, that's enough. That's a song for David Bowie called A Song for David Bowie by David Hart and Amun Ra. Just another piece of weirdness from the ongoing History Music Library. Which brings me to another popular question. How many albums, singles, CDs, and tapes are there in that library? I don't know. The answer, uh, 20,000 maybe? That used to be cool, but since more and more music is available online, the uber-rare stuff isn't so rare anymore. I can tell you that my book library is quickly becoming more important. In the age of Wikipedia, books are still very, very important sources of information. I have well over a thousand books on rock music at home. Um, actually, maybe closer to 2,000. It's very precious stuff. Duvel in Toronto, Steph in Melbourne, Australia, and Asim in Pakistan want to know what I think about the continuing collision of music and technology. Again, there's a really long answer that goes with that. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago giving a presentation on that very topic. And briefly, I think that the proliferation of smartphones are going to be to the next 10 years what the transistor radio was to the 50s and 60s. We haven't even begun to contemplate what the general population is going to do when everyone is always connected to the Internet so that any entertainment, any information, and any communication is always nothing more than a touchscreen away. Just look at the effect MP3 players have had on the way we interact with the public. Just a few years ago, we never saw people walking down the street wearing huge headphones, isolating themselves from the rest of the planet. And then at the other end of the scale, before cell phones, we weren't constantly being treated to one side of what used to be a private conversation, a private affair. One more. Somebody asked, what's your favorite band? I have many, but if I had to take three albums with me to Mars... It would be Pretty Hate Machine, the first Nine Inch Nails album, Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division, and the first Stone Roses album. I never get tired of songs like this. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.